Welcome to our podcast, All About the Car, brought to you by Sherrill Tire and Service. I'm your host, Rob Hoffman, an auto service specialist with over 44 years of industry experience. On the ride with me today, our regular guest, Brian Call, a 40-year veteran of the automotive industry. Hello, Brian. Hey, Rob. Great to be with you. Thanks for being back with us. And Bill Sherrill, a guy that is no stranger to the open road and always has a lot of great questions. Welcome back, Bill. Hi, Rob. Super glad to be here. Today we have very special guests with us today, or maybe we're their guests because we're on site at the Iola Car Show Grounds, and we have Joe and Larry right here with us of the Iola Old Car Show. Hey, guys. Hey, thanks for having us. We really appreciate it. Glad you had us come over to your place here, and we're just loving this room we're sitting in right now. Yeah, it's an unusual room. It looks really good. It's a throwback to the yesteryear, and it's done up pretty nice. Excellent. We got the best table I've ever seen. It's a mid-rise hoist. That's a car hoist we're sitting on top of here with a nice big piece of glass. <laughs> yeah, we used to be in an office downtown, and this is really neat. We're sitting here in what was part of the Krause Publications building, which we acquired a few years back and moved over here. We renovated this very small part of the building to fit our needs, and it does exactly what we want. We didn't want a boring office with cubicles like you can find anywhere. We wanted people to walk in the door and instantly make that connection. And and so everywhere you go here, you're going to see nods to the automobile, to service, to volunteerism, and to the past. You know, we're in the business of memories. And as you described, you're sitting at a very unique conference table right now. That's a vehicle lift with a clear piece of glass. And the whole setting says shop. Well, speaking of memories, you know, I personally have attended the show for over 20 years, and it's always been obvious to me that it didn't happen overnight. Obviously, it's just evolved over the years. And uh, and I see that every year when I spend my extended weekend here. Yeah. So being the history buff that I claim to be, I did a little research, and what I found is that it all began with the Lions Club. Yep. Yep. It's a very neat history. Chet Krause was a major entrepreneur in this area, and he had gotten into publishing, and really he was looking to diversify what they were doing. They were big in numismatics and collectibles and coins, and he wanted to get into cars and car collectibles. And so with the launch of what's known today as Old Cars Weekly came this invitation at the local Lions Club dinner festival for collectors to bring their cars. So the old saying is, Chet offered to buy lunch for his buddies that would bring their collectors, and that was about 20 cars back in 1972, and the rest is kind of history. So was that the publication that came with the invitation? It came on a company letterhead, a letter from Chet, and this was kind of to be the introduction to the world of Old Cars Weekly. And so it was just a hook attached to the Lions Club dinner, and it was great timing. It was the time of the hobby that really car shows were taking off. And so as a result, after a few years, it grew and grew and grew, and today we're approaching our 50th anniversary. It's a big year for you this year. It's a huge year, and as the history really goes, it it really outgrew something that could be this small marketing tool for the publication. They had their own job to do as they were growing and as Krause's was growing and and adding other titles to what they did. And so the Lions and a lot of volunteer groups were really involved in the boots on the ground aspect of the show. And in the 80s, it really outgrew the ability to be just a part of something else and it became its own nonprofit organization. What's really amazing is what the Iola Old Car Show has done for the local economy, not only during those 
three or four days or whatever it's been, but all the time surrounding that too. I mean, you go from 1,300 people, Iola residents, to over 120,000 people in the area in that period of time. Yeah. When you look at the statistics of the show, it is really interesting. You've got well, it wasn't that long ago that we had 3,000 volunteers. We still have about 2,000, a little better than 2,000 volunteers that participate in the show. And as you just said, the town is 1,300. So that tells you a little bit about the reach of help that we receive also. There's about 130 groups that receive funding directly from the show. These are Lions Clubs. These are church groups. These are car clubs, all sorts of different things, police organizations, fire departments, they donate their time, you know, these people do on behalf of those organizations, and they receive a payment then when it's done. And so we're approaching $9 million of direct payments to those groups and their projects since incorporation. And that doesn't even begin to touch, as you mentioned, the local economy. We're getting ready to share a recent economic impact study that was done on the show. And without giving anything away, it is staggering the effect that this small show or small operation has on the six counties in central Wisconsin, hotels, gas stations, restaurants. And it's a very comprehensive study. We're really excited to share those numbers. 100%. We feel it in Stevens Point that in every community where the old car, you just, if you may not be aware of the old car show, but all of a sudden the weekend when it happens, you go, oh, it's Iola Car Show because here's a string of old cars coming through my community. Or you see a beautiful old car sitting out front of the restaurant that you're going to and you go, oh, it's the Iola Car Show. The show definitely has caught the interest of all our local politicians, too. Uh, the state has been very supportive of anything that we wanted to do. I mean, they had went and we got the uh, Bill 382 passed to put up the highway signs on our highways to direct people to the grounds because it's national and it's almost becoming global right now at this particular point. So you're probably going to see a lot more cars. Our hope is you're going to see a lot more cars go past those places years. That's awesome. I mean, it's similar... I don't know it's size-wise to EAA, but I mean, that's that other draw in the summer. I mean, it's those two events that one's in the sky, one's on the ground. <laughs> when's that study going to come out? We'll be sharing it internally with the rest of our board next week. And after that, it'll be, we'll be ready to publish. So I would say in the next month or two, it'll be published and out for everybody. But I've seen the preview and I know what the numbers look like. It really is very cool. Awesome. And it, it's interesting that you mentioned EAA. We kind of look at them as a big brother in the way they operate, certainly a different ballgame and a different scale, but they included them in the comparisons and kind of a check and balance of this impact study. And it really is incredible what we do as compared to such another global organization. And the important thing in both of our cases are we're trying to preserve a certain amount of history for the new generations coming up. Too often in, in our lives, we tear down buildings that replicate or that are from our past. That are, and our cars, of course, are always changing. Now we're going to electric and such. And we need to have this for a history, a history check. And, and that's what I love seeing. I love seeing younger kids come up to my phone booth at my station and don't know what it is. And we have to explain it to them. <laughs> but, when they, but when they leave, they understand what it is. And we got to pay more interest to our history because if we don't, we're liable to repeat it. So Now, you mentioned national, and of course, you mentioned possibly global at this point. But let's go back to national. How many states away? I mean, how many states are involved in the show that week? Do you have any numbers on that? Yeah, it's all of them. I mean, we absolutely draw from every state in the union. We draw internationally. 
I would say a good 70% come from within the state or the immediate surrounding, but we have vendors from every state. We've got folks that um, jump in their trailer and pull it here to be in the swap meet from California, Oregon, Florida. And we've got national companies that do the same thing. Our, and our sponsors row, a lot of those are West Coast companies that pull the, the travel rig over and then they move on to the next show after that. What is specific about this show that makes it on the tour a company that you're just saying they pull in the rig and then they go on to the next show? But what is it specific about this show that makes it that unique stop? It's a few different things, but for a lot of them, it's our crowd. It's the fact that this is a group of people that they don't always get to interact with, but it's massive. I mean, when you have 120,000 guests here, there's an awful lot of consumer base here for them to educate, sell to, and we're really still getting a sense of just how powerful that crowd is. One of the things that Larry was very integral in is is the growth of real sponsorship at the show, which started not that long ago, not nearly as long as you would expect for a 50-year-old show. And the feedback we get from new sponsors is always, while we were not ready for this, this is much bigger, much more business than what we expected. And that really is a cool thing to continue to learn. What a great problem to have. Yeah, yeah. it absolutely is. Yeah. And a way of looking at it is very similar to, I'm going to use the NFL as an example, for instance. You can be a fan of the Tampa Bay Buccaneers, but you know... Or not. Or not. Or not. (laughs) not. But your life really isn't completed until you make a pilgrimage to the Lambeau Field. Okay, It's it's on everybody's bucket list, Mm -hmm. okay? You can be a car fan and you can go to all different shows you want to, but until you attend Iola... You can't scratch off your bucket list. It's a unique experience, right? That's for sure, right? And through the efforts of the team, the board, and everybody that's been involved in the recent years, we have infected the fans and the people that love cars, and they've now come to that conclusion that they have to come and attend this. And it's just not an ordinary person that has a car, a collector car, but it's also celebrities. It's also the sponsors that. Joe talks about. So we're really blessed and very fortunate that it has gone on and it's going to continue to go on and it's getting better. The phone's ringing. That's good. That's a good thing. Do you see the younger generations carrying this old car tradition on? Do you see that interest there? I do. I do. And I'm very hopeful for it too, because the generation of the cars that I'm accustomed to, and I think probably all of us here are more of the sixties, fifties and 70s and no those cars were built for the most part the muscle cars let's just say for kids Mm -hmm. well we still have kids we still have kids they like a 1970 cuda just like anybody else now of course it's a little more expensive (laughs) (laughs) but you can help not not fall in love with that you can't be an art major and not fall in love with a 59 cadillac fence you just can't that's right so That era in the automotive time that was really geared to people's attraction is still attracting. One of our biggest growing things is the pinup competitions. Well, the pinups from 1940s during the war goes around, comes around, and it's coming around again. So to answer your question, it's strong. And you're starting to get the styling back. Yes. With the newer cars coming out. We went through the late 70s, 80s. Dark age. Oh, my God, they were ugly. (laughs) The dark age. At least we're all in agreement. I'll tell you, we really try to be proactive about that as an issue, though. We don't sit here 
and rest on the crowd that is here today. We really want to be inclusive. We're family friendly. Within the last couple of years, we've added a new late model section. And there are a lot of other shows that are really, they've kind of picked their niche and that's where they are. They've got uh, pretty strict cutoffs and we don't want to do that. We have so much space. Larry says it all the time. We're big enough for everybody. We're not a show that we want one particular category to dominate. One of the awesome examples of this just within the last couple of years is Toys for Trucks. Toys for Trucks has become a great sponsor. They put up a 224-foot building on our grounds this last year to serve as their booth space. And it was really, really cool as a person who goes out to attend SEMA and sees a lot of other shows that are really new, you know, aftermarket style shows to see that sort of commitment and that sort of group integrated in here because we've got people that are here to see stuff from the 20s and 30s. We've got people here that only care about modified or original. But honestly, we've seen our crowd be very accepting of kids bringing something totally different. The lifted trucks and imports of today are really no different than the muscle cars were in the 70s. Those -hmm. those were not cars that were at car shows. Those were just, as Larry said, they were fun for the kids and look at them today. So we know that there's a pendulum that swings here and and our crowd ages and we want to keep on offering something for everybody. Speaking of that, you're not just a car show either. There's a lot of things like you mentioned going on on the grounds here for all ages. I mean, you're a swap meet. That was my big draw way back in the beginning. Now I got a car to bring, but campsites, there's camping, collector toys, there's a toy barn. Mm -hmm. Pretty excited about that. That's full of kids during the show. Yep. We want to have something for everybody, no matter what. We've added a flea market area because we know we've got people that are interested in shopping, but maybe aren't looking for fenders and wheels. So there's more and more vendors out here of a variety. But quite honestly, you hit it on the head. And the swap meet, I would say, is really most responsible for the show turning into what it is today. Because in the 70s, 80s, 90s, even the 2000s, before so many online marketplaces and aftermarket opportunities existed, if you were going to find what you needed, you had to go to a big swap meet. And, and they did a wonderful job in the early years of promoting this and building this. And that still is true today. We were on the road yesterday and we're constantly talking about the treasures that exist out there. And there's really a resurgence right now in swap meets because as people are watching uh, auctions online and seeing these crazy prices, that stuff's out here and you just have to walk around and, and know what you're looking for. Do you do any purchasing of those materials from Iola itself to have a presence at the swap meet? I mean, you just you just mentioned going around to shows and having access, and all of a sudden you see this piece. I, I can't imagine it's going to be difficult not to acquire that, to bring it and say, I know that there's buyers that would buy that at Iola. Well, speaking from my own, I mean, when I was employed here full-time, one of my biggest things I missed was I couldn't go out in the grounds uh, because I was just so busy. So I really missed that. But we don't do that for the show because we know we have vendors that do that. And now that I'm semi-retired or basically retired, I do have that opportunity going back out. And I do, if I do see something, I can purchase it for myself. But other than that, the vendors are what brings it in. And there are some true treasures out there. And sometimes what the smart buyer will do 
is anticipate the next move as far as what's going to be hot. And some of the things that are really super hot right now, maybe three years ago, weren't. And you could have went out there and you could have gone for nothing and, and you wouldn't have found a bank account or a, well, a couple of stocks maybe, but you won't find something that would be able to produce the income that those items would be worth today. So it's an exciting part of the whole purchasing in the vendors is that you have to think ahead. The kids today or the next generation, I can tell you right now, is going to buy Transformers. Remember the Transformers? Well, that's that generation. And I can guarantee you those are going to be hot. I'll give you another prophecy that I know is going to come true. And that is a Chevy Avalanche is going to be a very collectible vehicle 10, 20 years from now. Interesting. And people, you've heard it here. Yeah. I guarantee it. I guarantee it. But they didn't come from Wisconsin. Well, no, they didn't come from Wisconsin. But see, that's all part of the mystique. What's next? And the real buyer out in that vendor spot is thinking ahead. He's not thinking like everybody else. He's thinking ahead. What's the next hot thing? He's not, he's buying a transformer for pennies on a dollar and put it away because he knows it's going to be something someday. And it repeats itself. It constantly repeats itself. Well, the like a 72 there. Bronco. Yeah. Five, awesome. seven, eight years ago, you could buy it for scrap. Yep. Earlier. And now it's thirty, forty thousand. dollars And it can be rusted too. Yeah. Yeah. And it can, it can be rusted. Yeah. <laughs> Earlier, we talked about the dark ages, and here's a great example of that. Late 70s and 80s and early 90s cars that were really ugly, you know, universally believed to be zero styling. There is such a movement out there, and the group calls themselves the Malaise Motors, okay? And these guys have an absolute obsession with these cars, and they understand about themselves that this is a quirky, funny thing to love. But they love it. And it's because it takes them back to their childhood. Sure. We were talking about this late model stuff yesterday and how we make selections of these ni- you know, 1990s and newer vehicles because we only have so much room and we don't want all of the same thing. I would love to find a Cherry 91 Camry because that was the first car I had to drive when I was 16. Nobody on the planet thinks that's an awesome car, but I would love to find one. And so it is funny. This just speaks to Larry's point. You, people want what takes them back to their own childhood. And so a lot of these cars that we think today are really ugly, they will have their season. And that's for sure. Well, you did oh, say this, it earlier. You talked about memories. This is what it's about. It's all memories. That's right. And oh, this past year, you had a 73 Chevelle out there. You never see them. Right. That was my first car. Right. That's right. And what's really important for your listeners to know is that I can't speak for other car shows and events, but the Iowa Car Show and the people that are involved with it, like myself, we really believe in this. This is why we're here. This is why. Passion, absolutely. It's a burning passion. And for people that don't understand it, they have to just look at what they love. If it's funny, I mean, they sit in a tree all morning when it's 10, 10 degrees <laughs> out, and they think it's perfectly fine, and that's okay. But see, it's a passion, and we love it. And as life goes on and you become successful and you sort of get done with the kids going to college and everything is pretty well under control, and you what do we do? money again. What do we got? Yeah, yeah, you got a few dollars. What do you do? You, you grasp. And what I try to tell people is that if you really want an understanding about how the car show works and the people that attend it, 
the best movie to watch is Citizen Kane because that tells the true story about what the car show is about and what's important in life. And I won't give out the buzz on it, but it really is true. And it's Rosebud is yep. the buzzword. Are you, you're oh, yeah. That? So is that the first movie everyone has to study at some point in English? And then we just watched it over the holidays. Yep. That's what it's all about with the car show. And we really believe in that here. So everything that Joe and the team and myself are involved with in the board, we believe in this. We really believe in what this is about and the memories. So we try to create that. If you go out here and you see the directional signs with the towers on top, that's all done for a reason. Everything has a meaning behind it. And that's what the gas station that I'm building right now means to me is that's all about memories. So you'd mentioned earlier that this is a very special year. It's a 50th anniversary. This has been going strong since 1972, and we're in 2022. Now, there was a special moment recently with Governor Evers as well. What was that all about? Yeah, this is really cool, and this is something that we'll brag about a little bit because of what it means for all of those involved. A, a official state proclamation was signed by the governor with some bipartisan help to proclaim the week of the car show this year officially as Iola Car Show Week in the state of Wisconsin. That's awesome. That went through all branches of state government and was signed by the governor. And it really is a testament to a lot of generations of hard work and meaning. And it's really something we're proud of. Joe and I are uh, going to probably become consultants on bipartisan getting along in, in the state government. We both have testified in front of the Ways and Means Committee at the state of Wisconsin. And it's bipartisan thing that they can do down there. And they're very, very happy. And it's actually very enjoyable to be part of it. Can I give you some other topics then? Yeah. Yeah. I'd like to work on that. Yeah. <laughs> we can send you there with all kinds of yeah. stuff. Yeah. Well, it really is easy from the position we're in because how do you not get behind what this show represents? It's oh, so I'm sure non-bipartisan approach, they could find something. Yeah. <laughs> it's a no-brainer, let's say. <laughs> Just to the state. Yeah, yeah it's awesome. And, That's great. Yeah. As with every All About the Car podcast, we always break away for a road trip Wisconsin. And we're going to break away from the Iola car grounds right now. And we're going to head to Door County. From what I understand, this is one of Joe's favorite destinations, at least a quick getaway, and one of mine as well. As a matter of fact, if our listeners don't know where Door County is, it's a little peninsula stuck up in the upper right-hand corner, so that would be northeast part of the state. And it's kind of a world all its own. As a matter of fact, it's been called the Cape Cod of the Midwest. Yeah, it is one of my favorite destinations. I love taking just maybe a one or two day road trip with a night over. It is like its own environment. As soon as you get out on the peninsula, there's a lot of different parks to check out. There's some awesome restaurants. It's just a charming getaway. And it seems like there are always a lot of people there. And yet it somehow doesn't feel like it. It really is a neat spot. And, the, and they say the shoulder seasons of fall and spring and the winter is a fantastic time. Yeah. Just you have to call ahead because I've tried to go a little bit too late in the winter at times. So some things are closed down. Sure. But those fall and shoulder things, if you don't like people, it's still a great time to be able to get Absolutely. there. Absolutely. And they're known for their apple and plum and cherry orchards. Now, the plum part I heard was more of a history thing, but... There's plum orchards out there, too. So it's it's really interesting, beautiful countryside. Absolutely. 
There's wine making. There's wine. Absolutely. Breweries. There's wine tasting tours by yes. trolley. Have yeah. you done that? Done the trolley tours. Not the tasting cool. tours, but yeah, the bluffs, the scenery. I mean, you get a little bit of everything up there. And the best is to go all the way to the north and cross over to Washington Island. Yep. That's an upcoming plan for me. And uh, if you're hungry, plenty of places to eat up there. Wild tomato pizza is one of my favorites, along with Al Johnson's Swedish restaurant. And what's so unique, Brian, about Al Johnson's? The goats on the roof. The goats on the <laughs> roof. They actually have the goats up there in the summertime, keeping the grass on the roof short. And you have to remember the lingonberries. The lingonberries, absolutely. And they got the goat cams to watch them while you're eating. Yeah. <laughs> so what are, are those GTOs they got on the roof up there, Brian? Different kind of goat. Goat. (laughs) We know how you think. That's what I want to see. I drive all that way, and I'd be disappointed if there wasn't one. They're four-wheel drive goats. (laughs) What's another interesting thing too, and Joe, I don't know if you've been there, but the Newport State Park. It's up towards the point of the peninsula, and it's one of the 48 dark sky viewing sites in the world. It was actually the first dark sky designation in Wisconsin, which is amazing. So that means that. There's very little artificial light, if any, in that park, and you can see just about anything you want to see in the sky. Absolutely amazing. Peninsula State Park, have you ever spent any time there? Yep, I've camped there. That's an awesome lookout, cool area, just in general. They got a new eagle lookout up there, which is just great. Which reminds me of that of Peninsula Players, the theater. Peninsula Players, absolutely. That's an open air Artistic endeavors. Mm -hmm. Absolutely. A lot of things to see. You can easily spend, yeah, you could spend a week up there. We spend a lot of weekends there, but it's always nice to come back. Yeah, absolutely. That was kind of the question posed is about destinations. And the more I think about it, I love these trips. But as I get a little bit older, I really love the trip back. The closer I get to home, to Iola, the more I start seeing farmer's fields and it's just beautiful scenery that takes me back to my childhood. And that's what I imagine a lot of our customers experience that maybe only come up here once a year. This is uh, just, you, you get that sense of familiarity. You start seeing some of the same landmarks and silos and farms and fields. And it's a special feeling. It's a special place. Always good to come back home, right, Joe? True. No place like home. I think that was famous by somebody. (laughs) Well, we're back home, or at least we're back close to home for me, but we're back at the Iola Old Car Grounds right now, and we're going to kind of get into the nitty-gritty of these classic cars. And, Larry, we're probably talking more along your lines here when we're talking about the workings of a car and how you take care of those things. Well, it all depends on the owner. And when it comes to collector cars, there's so many different tiers, and I've had them all. Right now, most of my cars I consider drivers, okay? They're not the pristine show cars, although I have restored cars to that level very successfully. And so there's all different ways of maintaining those kind of cars and depending on what they are. Of course, the trailer queens are just what what it says. They're trailer queens. You don't really drive them. You trailer them where they're going. And if you're the kind of person like I was that wants to restore them back to originality, you put thousands of hours literally researching every little screw and every little clip, every little whatever, because when you're judged, if you are in a judging situation, all that kind of stuff comes into play. But the majority of us, like myself now, have drivers. And the drivers are cars that, if you all remember when we were back in the days, if you had a car that got 100,000 miles, it was pretty well done. It was shot. Uh, it was shot. That was the top birthday right, right there. Right. And it had a lot to do with the way they build on the machining, 
the oils, the bearings, everything that involves in an engine and, and such. And that has all changed. Well, now, oh, 100,000 miles, you're not even broken broke yet. In. Yeah, yeah, you're just, you're, <laughs> I see a car 100,000 miles, I thought, oh, wow, but it's nothing. So the cars, they're just drivers that you drive to your show and enjoy, and you have to maintain them correctly. And doing so, you have to sort of go back to those days. It's not a 9,000 mile oil change. It's still 3,000 miles, 2,000 miles. You have to be really careful of what's in your engine, how your valve guides, everything else that might be affected by the gas you put in. Do you put an additive in? Are they ready to go front unleaded? My God, keep out the ethanol. Yeah, ethanol. ethanol. <laughs> keep the ethanol out. I, I run nothing but premium in mine, and I try to find non-ethyl gas. So you have to look at some of those things while you're maintaining them and Believe it or not, it's really becoming hard to find mechanics that understand these cars, too. Because mechanics have been replaced by techs, and techs do everything by codes, and they replace the parts as, as prescribed. Where years ago, the old cars, and I'll use my 67 GTO as an example, you have to have a mechanic that can actually diagnose that. Mechanic of the past, when I look at them now, is they're like doctors. They look at stuff, and they can diagnose it. They are the computer. They are your code reader, your scanner. So it's not always easy to find people like that. And then being that the, it's a car that you love, you truly love, and it's got to do with what we talked about with memories and everything else, you just don't want that in anybody's hands. I always tell people that get into this business, if you're good at what you're doing and you're sincere and you're honest, you will have cars in line from here all the way to another county. Because we as car people really appreciate and love those people. So in maintaining them, you just got to sort of think back the way your dad used to think or maybe do some research because it's not the same car you have out there today. Yeah, dialing in a six-pack or dual yeah. quads. Well, Nobody can do that anymore. Adjusting the lifters. <laughs> that's, yep, yep. And some of that dialing that stuff in, that's the next level even as an old mechanic. A lot of old mechanics couldn't even do that either. And unfortunately, like everything else, those guys are sort of moving on and passing off. And believe it or not, we got a lot of gals out there that can hold their own, too, when it comes to that kind of stuff, too. I'm not just saying, guys, there's some really sharp gals out there that I'm, I'm really impressed with when it comes to this. And we got, we got a few around here that I'm, I'm impressed. The printed materials and the information in order to be able to do all that still available these days, or do you have to find that old mechanic? No, there's a lot of reprint. You can educate yourself. That's the, probably one of the best things. Another thing that I tell people is go to YouTube. Say you want to rebuild a carburetor. You can find all that stuff on YouTube. A lot okay. of guys have documented it. It's on YouTube. Believe it or not, if you restore a car, I'm a GM guy, so I'm going to speak for GM but they have a what's called an assembly guide back on cars from the 60s. And literally, it's a coloring book when you look at it. And, and one thing about when you restore a car, the car talks to you. It literally talks to you. So if you put this bolt in this bracket, but you put it in in a different sequence, I guarantee you that car is going to tell you that in about two more steps. And you know what you're going to do? You're going to go back. Undo it all. Yes. I read, I read, a, uh, yes. And I've read a lot of articles and the best restoration person will tell you that. You will not 
put together one thing, a uh, car, without taking parts of it apart again. <laughs> I can attest to that. <laughs> Absolutely. That's called a labor of love, right? Yeah, yes. what well, else? It is. But they so talk to you. <laughs> yeah. Now I get it. Now I know why that's set up that way. Yep. Now I know why that tab is there. And it's great because it educates. Well, another thing I try to tell people, maintaining it, restoring, don't be intimidated by it either. It isn't. To today's standards, car from the 60s and 70s is actually enjoyable. It's very simple in comparison with the wirings and things like that, unless you get into like a Hemi or rebuild cars or whatever else, engines. But don't be intimidated by it. Don't let it scare you. Enjoy it. I had to replace a U-joint on a mid-30s. I don't remember what model it was, but it had the solid shaft from the front to the back. And it's like, holy cow, how do I get that U-joint out of there? Yeah. You tinker with it long enough, you right. figure it out. Yeah. They built some of these cars back in those days for the average person to maintain. Because mechanics weren't everywhere. That's right. Then. That's you right. You didn't have the money to be able to pay somebody to do it. Right. So, you had to go in and adjust your own valves. Right. And what are some things that everyone should do just on an annual basis? You know, just good best practice every year. Again, if it's a driver that you enjoy, changing the oil and going through it, nut and bolts, your tires, one thing you don't have to really worry about is too much rust because, again, you're not fighting, you're not in the snow with it. And when you put it away, my biggest thing I try to tell people is try to put it on a dry floor. If you're forced to put it in a barn or a garage, go to a Menards and get yourself a cheap tarp, lay that down, park it on top of that tarp. Don't allow that moisture to migrate to that frame. It's just not a good situation. Remember something. Those cars, when they're in those in the barns and such, as they capture the weather, the cold, and then you get a hot, muggy day and there's condensation and stuff. So you have to do that. Now, you have to be aware of that. Now, the trailer queens, of course, they're in climate control. They don't get out. But that's a whole other thing. I guess uh, you have to look at your wallet and see what your budget's can afford. What is that to-do list that you do before you put it away in storage? Let's say you do have that dry floor space and in a garage out of the elements. What other things should be done? Well, first of all, I would check my tire pressure. I'd start with that. Fuel is a big thing, and there's a big controversy about fuel that it's always been. Of course, we go with 100%. We stay away from the 10%. In a lot of places, when you store a car in the wintertime, the fire, local fire departments don't want you to have more than a half a tank of gas in their car. That's understandable. And I'm sort of the opinion that I don't know. Some guys like to fill their tank all the way up. They say it prevents condensating. But then I think to myself, now I hear a car sat for the last five months and I got this old gas in it. You know, it's And now gas really expires quick. And so I personally store with hardly any gas and I get fresh gas put in. So you have to determine what you want. We're on the, uh, that particular thing. Are you on what side? I personally drain it down to nothing. I know there's this condensating idea, but... Rust in the tank. Right, right. But also, gas isn't what it used to be, even 100% octane or 90, 91% octane. So you got to do that. And of course, there's stabilizers out there too. That does help. I'm just one that I go with. A, but I try to keep my cars in climate control. If they're in climate control, then you have nothing yeah, to worry about. Way better environment. Yeah, then you're done. The other thing that I'd like to have you do, too, is the, they recommend all the guys in the fields and the gals is that change oil before you put it away. Yep, I agree. So there's another thing you can do. I 
You know, in my crazy days, I used to change it before I'd put it away and I'd change it after I got it off because... I do that. That's... <laughs> oh, good. I, I'm not sure why, but that's why I'm here. I thought I was nuts, you know, by myself. It's always nice having company. I don't know if I'm doing it right. <laughs> Well, there's sediments in the pure, clean oil, right? Right. That's the purpose. There right. Yeah. Like just it. might have a Condensation sediment. gets in there and right. breaks down the oil. Okay. That's how we're splitting hairs. But that comment right there indicates what we feel about our cars. I feel I'm being good to my car. Right. How many guys clean your gun after deer hunting? How many guys clean it when you when you pull it out and go do it? Good Same point. gun. Good point. You know, everybody are fishing rods, put new line on. I mean, it always gives a sense of control. And so that's why you do that. Do you fog your engines? I don't fog my engines, again, because I'm in a climate control. I guess that's something, again, you have to determine if you think that's the best what thing. Is what is that, Brian? It's an additive that you put down through the carburetor that leaves an oily deposit yeah. on oh. all the internal parts of the so engine. It so it smokes pretty good in the spring? It smokes really good when you finish it. Yeah. You oh, finish gotcha. it off, just killing the engine. And then in the spring, yeah, you get a lot of smoke. <laughs> Some guys will say, don't do that, but put Marvel mystery oil in a little bit in your gas and let it run. And I know mechanics that recommend doing that too, because that's another thing they they'll do it. Everybody's sort of got their own little yeah. cocktail, you know, yeah, yeah. but whatever makes you feel good, you know, that's what you do. Jacking the tires off yeah. the ground so they don't get flat spots. Well, the batteries, yeah, I pull all my batteries out. I always disconnect it, pull my batteries out. And again, when you store at a different location, like you're renting a spot, most places want that done too. The battery's taken out. And I put mine in the basement, and I charge it up throughout the year and just keep it fresh. Keep it off the concrete. Yep, keep it off concrete. That's a big one. A lot of people don't realize that, but you got to keep it off that concrete so you don't draw that ground down. So that's important. A battery tender, that's a good idea too, or same type of idea? or Battery tenders are okay. There's nothing wrong with them. I Again, that's a personal opinion. I like seeing my battery in my basement where it's 70 degrees or 60 degrees, and it's okay. It's not it's got a little blanket on it. Yeah. Yeah. Go down and visit once in a yeah. while. Yeah. Oh, yeah. It's like a Whatever makes you guy. feel good. Whatever. Yeah. That's right. The true guys. You got car guys. You got to love them. Yep. Yeah. It's, that's what it's all about. So speaking of covers or covering, should you be covering your car? Put a cover over the top of it. I do cover all my cars. Okay. And again, no matter what the situation is, as far as where you're storing it, I mean, in some cases, if you've got birds that can get in there, some of the, what they leave behind can be actually harmful for yeah, your paint. paint. Yeah. Yep. I definitely cover it. Now I use a cloth type. I want it to breathe a little. Again, we're talking about cars. <laughs> <laughs> we're all looking at you like, okay, that steel really needs that oxygen. Some tells, some tells me I'm surrounded by some normal, some people that think the same way. I don't feel so bad. No, you, we're good. We're yeah. good. You want that to breathe so you don't have that condensation sticking exactly. down. So you, to get it out. There's some reason to be sanity. Yeah. See. No. What about a heating blanket? Have you considered a <laughs> heating blanket? I have never done that. I, did, I have used heated blankets when I sleep with the car at night. Yes, yeah. I do. <laughs> oh, that's too good. So we've got it all tucked away. Yeah, we go out and we look at it a lot. But what happens in the spring? Do we just reverse that to-do list? Or are there a few things to do that are different? In the spring, you bring it out. And, of course, you 
go through the process of putting a battery in and checking things out. I Before I reset the battery, I always look at the bay where it goes in, make sure there's no rust corrosion, any kind of thing going on underneath the, the pan where, where it sets in. You go through your terminals, clean those up, um, and you basically start the process over. Now, me, I don't have a full tank of gas, so first thing I get is that really fresh gas. And I tell you, it makes it, and you fire that thing up, and it really makes it all right. One thing I failed to say, too, that I try to do is before I put the car away, I'm sorry, we're going to go back a minute, but before you put the car away, too, you don't want to just start it up and drive it to your spot that's maybe 500 yards away or even a mile away. Because what happens, you're creating condensate, it's getting in your muffler system, it'll sit there all winter. So take it for a nice little long ride before you park it, get it warmed up, get that condensate out of that, out of that muffler so it's it's got a good winter ahead of it. That's a good idea. So along with that, as you get the car out, you go through it. Biggest thing is tire pressures. You have to check your tire pressures. Make sure you're good to go there. And then go through and basically start the car up, make sure there's nothing really weird going on. Uh, prior to that, of course, you know, you do your visuals, your belts. I don't drive in the rain, so don't worry about the windshield wiper blades. Uh, <laughs> but general things, again, you're going back in time. When things were built, not the last for 300,000 miles, but for 100,000 miles. So you got to keep that in wear. You can wash it, you wax it. I go around, I spray the lock sets. Just good general maintenance. And if you have any other problems, what you do again before you put it away is you note those and stick it in the car So because you, you forget. So you need to put yourself a note because as we get older, we forget things. Absolutely. <laughs> Makes total sense. Yeah. A lot of good ideas there for sure. When it comes to, uh, let's say, ongoing beautification maintenance or the pretty parts, the convertible tops, the padded dashes, things like that. How do you keep those things looking new? Well, that's a, an experiment. And I don't really go into products names because we don't endorse any product over another. But you have to be careful sometimes what you use because some of those chemicals are not the best for what you think they are. So be real cautious. Do a little research on it. With the collector cars being what they are and the market they are, they're always coming out with more and more new products for those kinds of vinyls and convertible tops. So be careful in what you do. But I have gone as far as cleaning vinyl tops off with a toothbrush, the whole top from start to finish. That's love. Oh, I loved every minute of it. <laughs> well, you got to get down into those pockets. Absolutely. Oh, yeah. You're going to clean that whole thing. But that's what you do because it gives you control over what you're doing. You don't want to spray a chemical on that when you get over to the last part of that chemical, all of a sudden something happened to your top because it sat too long so when you got your baby in front of you like that and you're doing a vinyl top let's don't get too carried away because if you get too carried away and you get ahead of yourself your chemicals react differently given the time that they're on surface so that's why i use the toothbrush because i would just do an area of five by five and then i clean it i move to the next area and continue on until i knew i was satisfied because chemicals can do some really weird things. You have to be very, very careful. Well, that's the name of the game. Well, some of your cheap or some of your knockoff, it could be pure kerosene in there. Well, and that would just ruin everything. I bought a pair of yellow toe socks thinking I was going to get yellow toe socks. Well, they were, they were knockoffs from China. And you would know looking at the package. There's a lot well, of that. Chemicals work the same way. That's why you have to be very careful. And 
you have final original vinyl top like I have on my GTO. You don't get a second chance at that. If all of a sudden you fade it, who can put a vinyl top on anymore? Well, yeah, and, and the thing is, it's not time. original. Yes, that's like yeah. a headliner. Yep. Then how do you how do you test the product on that? I mean, you even start out research, small. even a small corner you though, it's too much. You help your buddy out. Yeah, <laughs> on his GTO. <laughs> Again, we don't endorse one product over the other. But I'm also available to tell you what I'd use as mm-hmm. people just talk to me. But I mean, as far as from a perspective of the show, we don't endorse any one product over the other. Sense. Let's talk a little bit about licensing a classic car. Are either of you experts in that area? There's different ways to license a classic car or a special interest or a low use. What do you recommend and how does that all work? Well, the state of Wisconsin has different kinds of license. And I would caution the person applying for those licenses to really, again, a lot of it comes down to research. I hate to throw it out there all the time, but in the state of Wisconsin, you got your regular license. And of course, then you got a collector's license, which is the blue with the red letters. And then you have like what's called a hobbyist. And why I caution people to watch what they do is because with the onset of the craze of cars and, and the values of the cars, it's become very important to label that correctly. So, for instance, if you have a pretty close original car, you don't want to necessarily go to a hobbyist plate right off the bat because you need to read what their explanation of a hobbyist plate is. And once you get that brand on your car, it's hard to sometimes get it off and basically what it says is it's not really stock it used to i haven't looked in the last year or two but again i caution because you don't want any kind of a label like that in your car if it isn't true now if you a hobbyist my understanding was always was there for hot rods and you know resto rods and things like that that were sort of modified and the collector plates are the collector plates now I personally buy regular plates for my cars. And the reason I do is because I like the way they look in comparison to the other two. And I've taken that issue up and we always are after our state legislators to consider giving us a different plate. You bring back the yellow and the black letters. Yes. That would be so cool. Or also recognize Wisconsin for its automotive history. Absolutely. You know, we had American Motors. We had GM, we had Hartford and Nash, and we really have a connection here. And an Iowa car show, of course. So I'd like to see that sort of roll into an original plate. Now, on the hobbyist, can you get caught in the trap where it might be considered a newer car and you have to follow the standards? Well, it's so changing, I, I'm reluctant to really make a comment on that. But what, what I'll tell you is this, is I know of people that have gotten a certain plate only with the idea somehow they're going to get way cheaper and that's what you got to watch out for because cheaper laws isn't better so please do your research on it and make sure that that plate that you're asking for goes there now there's always examples out there and again before i plate my car i'd research it what you should do is match the plate and what the plate allows you to do to you as a driver and your car. That's correct. Saying. That's yep. correct. Don't think you're got to edge on the game because you're saving 10 bucks. The collector plates at one time, well, not too long ago, you had to submit a picture of the car that was going on. 
And I think they've done away with that now. But what they do now is I think they got a renewal fee. Again, it changes so often I can't keep up with it. I just pay my license because I like the one that's there. And that's one I go with. Makes sense. Joe, do you have any classics in your garage? Well, this is going to take us back a little bit to some previous topics. I kind of tell people I've got kids, so I don't have any cool cars. But I do have a car that I really love in the garage. I got it about two years ago. Speaking of the dark ages and vehicles that are less than desirable for most, I had a fascination with Vanagons, Volkswagen Vanagons. These were what the buses uh, kind of evolved into before they became traditional vans. So Larry and I went down to Mequon a couple of years ago and picked up a really nice 91 Vanagon that was just a, it was the right price for me. It was really a nice car. It came out of the South, so it didn't have many rust issues. And it's not a very valuable car, but I'll tell you, I love it as much as anybody at our show loves their car. And so it's kind of an obscure one, but that's my baby. Well, that's that, that Volkswagen van, right? Yep. You had some nice ones sitting out here last year at the show. Yeah. None of those were mine. No? <laughs> I was parked next to one of them. Mine is something less, but I love her the same. Nice. Very nice. Now, Larry, I get the feeling that you're an old car guy. We know that from what we've learned today. And <laughs> no, you've really probably not. had a few cars in your day. If you had to pick your number one all-time that you've owned, what would that be? Boy, that's a tough question. That's why I ask it. <laughs> I've been really lucky to own a lot of neat cars. But believe it or not, I'd probably sell the farm to, to find my original car, my original first two cars. One was a 67 Impala. And the next Sweet. one was a 69 Firebird four-speed car. And if I could crawl back in those same cars, those cars, and I hunt for them. I look for them. I look for them. Well, make sure you hit over to the car corral this year. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> the last, I was absent the last seven years. God, Joe and I would be going to a call somewhere, and I'd be, he'd be going, we'd be whipping through the swap meeting or or the car curl, I'd be hanging in the back looking at the cars drooling, trying to have them stop, and we had to get going. I, yeah, you give up a lot when you work there, that's for sure. <laughs> you do, yeah, absolutely. Well, we learned a lot today on the Iola Old Car Show with its humble beginnings and how it's grown into one of this country's largest classic car shows, making an economic impact on Wisconsin. We also learned from the resident expert Joe and Larry on how to care for your classic car. Thank you, Joe and Larry your team, and all the volunteers for what you do each and every year for the Iola Old Car Show. Yeah, thank you very much for having us. We really appreciate it. It's awesome to meet you guys and have you uh, come in and check out our space here. It's great Fantastic. to be in a wonderful place. There's one thing I have to add before we go, because I thought of it, and it's really, really important. For anybody that gets into the hobby, okay, and finds that car, please, please, and wants to restore it, please, please, restoration starts the minute you get the car and you research the car. Restoration doesn't start the minute you rip off the first fender. It starts with researching the car. And the reason I use an example is that we had a young man here three years ago that went and answered an ad for a Camaro. And it was relatively cheap. He picked it up for almost nothing. But he was a smart person and he started researching it. And he found out it was like the third Camaro ever built. Oh my gosh. And he hit Pater. Yeah. That car is probably worth anywhere Six from half, years. Yeah, half a million dollars up. And he restored it. So the thing that's really important for your listeners to know is restoration starts with researching the car. You don't know what you might have. So please look into that seriously. 
Look at the history of that car. We looked at a car yesterday that President Eisenhower drove through a parade on that's documented. Wow. And it was rescued out of a junkyard. And it's become a part of history for this person. So please look into that. That's awesome. Great advice. That has a lot of questions, but we don't have time. <laughs> <laughs> we hope to have you right along next time on All About the Car. To listen to previous episodes, find additional resources, or to simply send us a message, head to allaboutthecarpodcast.com. We'll see you next time.